Hey folks, this is Rish Outfield, and you are listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name. This is a podcast that I used to do years ago before the Rish Outcast existed. Mostly me reading stories that are in the public domain. Very rarely would they be stories of my own. And uh, in 2021, I really took it upon myself to broaden my horizons as far as reading short stories went. I would make it a goal to read at least one short story, and sometimes two every single week. And um, often, I would read those short stories aloud. And on some of those occasions, I would just start a recorder going, because if I was reading it aloud anyway, what if I really, really liked it? I could use that recording in an episode. The story that I'm going to share with you today is called The Apparition, and the writer is Guy de Maupassant. I think that's how you say it. I have to admit that the first time that I sat down and recorded the story, I called him Guy de Maupassant. And then I tried it various ways, Guy de Maupassant, Guy de Maupassant, you know, stuff like that. Not realizing that G-U-Y is pronounced Guy in Francais, which I do not speak. Uh, it looks like it was published in 1883. It is a very short story, and I hope that you uh, enjoy my performance of it. Oh, let me tell you a little bit about the author. Henri René. Albert Guy de Maupassant was a 19th century French author remembered as a master of the short story form who depicted human lives and destinies and social forces in disillusioned and often pessimistic terms. He wrote 300 short stories, six novels, three travel books, and one volume of verse. Most famous for a story called Boulet de Suif, or, or The Dumpling, thank you, from 1880. Enjoy! An Apparition by Guy de Maupassant. We'd been talking about sequestration in connection with a recent lawsuit. It was towards the end of an evening spent among friends, at an old house in the Rue de Grenelle, and every one of us had told a story. A story supposed to be true. Eventually, the Aegis Marquis de la Tour Samuel, who was 82, got to his feet and, leaning against the mantelpiece, said, in a rather tremulous voice, I, too, I, too, have experienced something strange. So strange, in fact, that I have been haunted by it all my life. It is more than half a century since the incident happened, but not a month has passed without my seeing it all again in a dream. The impression, the imprint of terror, if you can follow me, 
has stayed with me ever since that day. For ten minutes I underwent such a ghastly fright that ever since a kind of perpetual fear has remained in my soul. Unexpected noises make me tremble to the bottom of my heart, and things obscurely seen in the darkness almost impel me irresistibly to flee. In brief, at night I am afraid. I wouldn't have confessed to that when I was younger, but now I can say anything. At eighty-two I don't feel obliged to be courageous in the presence of imaginary dangers. I have never given way before any real danger. But the affair disturbed me so utterly and caused me such profound, mysterious and awful distress that I never mentioned it to anyone. I have suppressed it in the depths of my being, those depths in which tormented secrets are hidden, the secrets and frailties we are ashamed of. I shall tell it to you precisely as it happened, without any attempt at explanation. Undoubtedly it can be explained, unless I were mad at the time. But I wasn't mad, and I will prove it. You are at liberty to think what you choose, but these are the plain facts. It was in the year 1827, in July. I was stationed at Rouen. One day as I was strolling along the quay, I came across a man whom I thought I knew. Without being able to remember exactly who he was, impulsively I made as if to stop. The stranger noticed this, glanced at me, and embraced me. He was a friend of my youth, whom I had liked immensely. It was five years since I had set eyes on him, and he seemed to be fifty years older. His hair was completely white, and he moved with a stoop as if utterly worn out. He saw my astonishment and told me what had happened to shatter his life. He had fallen desperately in love with a young girl and had married her, but after a single year of supreme love and happiness she had died suddenly of heart trouble, perhaps of love. On the day she was buried he abandoned his chateau and went to live in his house in Rouen. There he existed, desperate and lonely, eaten up by grief, and so unhappy that he contemplated suicide. Now that I have met you again, he said, I shall ask you to do me an important favour, to go to my former home and obtain for me from the bureau in my bedroom, our bedroom, certain documents which I urgently require. I can't send a servant or even a lawyer as utter discretion and complete secrecy are needed. For my own part, nothing on earth would persuade me to go into that house again. I will give you the key of the room, which I myself locked on departing, and the key of the bureau, and also a note to my gardener instructing him to open up the chateau for you. But come and have breakfast with me tomorrow morning, and we 
will arrange everything. I agreed to do him this small favour. It wouldn't be much of a trip, for his property was only a few miles out of Rouen, and could easily be reached in an hour by horse. So at ten o'clock next day I went round to his house, and we had breakfast together. Yet he hardly spoke a word. He asked me to forgive him, but the idea of the visit I was going to make to the bedroom in the chateau, the scene of his past happiness, overwhelmed him. Certainly he was strangely disturbed and preoccupied, as if some unknown conflict were going on in his soul. Eventually he told me in detail what I must do. It was quite simple. I was to obtain two bundles of letters and a roll of documents from the first drawer on the right-hand side of the bureau, to which I had the key. He added, I do not need to request you not to look at them. I was offended by that, and told him so in no uncertain manner. Do forgive me. I am suffering so much, he said brokenly, and began to weep. At about one o'clock I left him and set off on my mission. The weather was splendid, and I rode across the fields listening to the larks singing and to the rhythmical tapping of my sword against my boot. Presently I came to the forest and walked my horse. Branches of trees brushed my face as I rode, and every now and then I caught a leaf in my teeth and chewed it eagerly, for the sheer joy of being alive that sometimes fills one with intense happiness. As I drew near the chateau, I took the letter for the gardener out of my pocket to have a look at it, and was surprised to find it was sealed. I was so astonished and vexed by this that I was on the point of returning without having carried out my promise, but decided this would show too much sensitiveness. Quite possibly my friend had sealed the envelope unthinkingly. He had been so upset. The chateau had the appearance of having been neglected for a score of years. The gate was open wide and so derelict it was a wonder it was still hanging. The paths were smothered in weeds, and the flower beds and lawn were all one. My loud knocking aroused the old man, who emerged from a side door, he seemed bewildered with astonishment at my visit. He read the letter I gave him, examined it again and again, surveyed me suspiciously, put the letter in a pocket, and eventually demanded, "'Well, then, what do you want?' "'As you have only just read your master's instructions, you should know what I want. I wish to enter the chateau.' He was flabbergasted. You mean you propose to go into her room? I was beginning to lose patience. Look here, are you going to stand there cross-questioning me? No, monsieur, he said in confusion. It's only, well, it's only because the room hasn't been opened since, since she died. If you don't mind waiting for a few minutes, I'll go myself to see... If I interrupted him angrily, look, what are you talking about? You can't get into the room, as I have the key. All right, monsieur, I will show you the way, was all that he could say at that. 
Just show me the staircase and then leave me. I will find the way without you. But, monsieur... I was really angry by now. Shut up or I'll give you something to think about. I brushed past him and entered the chateau. I made my way first through the kitchen, then a couple of rooms occupied by the caretaker and his wife, next through a spacious hall by which I came to the staircase. I went up the stairs and soon recognized the door described by my friend. I opened it without difficulty and went in. The room was so dark that to begin with I couldn't make out a thing. I came to a halt, my nostrils assailed by the unpleasant, mouldering smell of untenanted rooms, of dead rooms. Presently, as my eyes grew used to the darkness, I could see quite clearly a large, untidy bedroom, the bed covered only by mattress and pillows on one of which was the obvious impression of an arm or a head, as if somebody had been resting there recently. The chairs were all out of place. I noticed that a door, probably leading to an anteroom, had been left half open. I went straight to the window, which I opened to let in the daylight, but the clasps of the shadows had become so rusty I couldn't make them budge. I even attempted to break them with my sword, but... I couldn't, as I was becoming vexed by my unavailing efforts, and anyhow could see quite well in the gloom, I gave up the idea of obtaining more light and went across to the bureau. I sat down in a chair, undid the lid of the bureau, and opened the drawer in question. It was crammed full. I required only three bundles of papers, which I knew how to identify, and started to look for them. I was peering closely in an attempt to make out the writing on them, when I seemed to hear, feel, rather, something rustling behind me. I took no notice, thinking the draught from the window was causing the movement, but the next moment a similar movement, barely perceptible, made me shiver unaccountably and disturbingly, I felt so stupid at this that pride prevented my turning round. By now I had located the second bundle of documents and was on the point of picking up the third, when a long, poignant sigh, coming from near my shoulder, made me leap like a madman from my chair and land several feet away. As I leapt, I turned round, my hand on the hilt of my sword, and in truth, if I hadn't felt it at my side, I would have fled like a coward. A tall woman, clad in white, stood looking at me from behind the chair where I had been sitting a moment ago. I almost collapsed with the tremor that passed through me. No one could appreciate that fearful terror unless he had experienced it. The mind grows blank, the heart stands still. The whole body becomes limp as a sponge, as if life itself were ebbing. I don't believe in ghosts, yet I surrendered utterly to a dreadful fear of the dead, and I endured more in those few moments than in the rest of my life, simply from that overwhelming terror of the supernatural. If 
she hadn't spoken, I think I would have died. But she spoke, she spoke in a gentle, sad voice that set my nerves tingling. I daren't say I had regained control of myself and come to my senses. No, I was so scared I hardly knew what I was doing. But a certain innate pride, a shred of soldierly instinct, caused me, in spite of myself, to maintain some kind of bold front. I was so scared I hardly knew what I was doing. But a certain innate pride, a shred of soldierly instinct, caused me, in spite of myself, to maintain some kind of bold front. I was keeping up appearances to myself, I suppose, and to her, whoever she might be, woman or ghost. It was only afterwards I realized all this, for I can tell you, when the apparition appeared, I thought of nothing. I was afraid. She said, Oh, monsieur, you can do me a great service. I endeavored to reply, but I couldn't utter a word. Nothing but a vague sound issued from my throat. She went on. Will you? You can save me, cure me. I am suffering fearfully. I am suffering, oh, how I suffer. And she sat down slowly in the chair. Will you? she asked, regarding me. I signified assent by nodding, for I was still voiceless. Thereupon she held out to me a tortoise-shell comb, and murmured, Comb my hair, please comb my hair, that will cure me, it must be combed, look at my head, how I suffer, my hair burns me so. Her hair, unplaited, was very long and very black, it hung over the back of the chair and reached to the floor. Why did I take that comb with a shudder? Why did I take that long black hair that made my skin creep as if I were handling snakes? I don't know. That feeling has stayed in my fingers to this day, and I still shiver when I think of it. I combed her hair. I handled, I don't know how, those ice-cold tresses. I untangled them, loosened them. She sighed and bowed her head, appeared to be content. All at once she exclaimed, Thank you! And snatched the comb from my hand and fled through the half-open door. Left to myself, I went through the terrified agitation of a person who wakes from a nightmare. At last I came to my senses. I hastened to the window and with a great effort broke open the shutters, letting in a flood of light. At once I ran to the door through which she had gone. I found it closed and immovable. Then a frantic wish to flee overcame me in the kind of panic soldiers experience in battle. I clutched the three bundles of letters on the open bureau ran from the room, rushed down the stairs four at a time, found myself outside, I don't know how, and seeing my horse a few paces away, leaped into the saddle and galloped off.
I only halted on reaching Rouen in my own house. Flinging the bridle to my groom, I hurried to my room where I locked myself in to think. For an hour I speculated anxiously whether I had been the victim of a hallucination. Surely I must have had one of those mysterious nervous shocks, one of those mental disturbances that give rise to miracles to which the supernatural owes its influence. I was almost convinced I had seen a vision, experienced a hallucination, when I went to the window. I happened to glance at my chest. My military cape was covered with hairs. The long hair of a woman which had got caught in the buttons. One by one, with trembling fingers, I plucked them off and flung them away. Then I summoned my groom. I was too distressed to go and see my friend that day. Moreover, I wanted to consider more fully what I ought to tell him. I sent him his letters, for which he gave the groom a receipt. He inquired after me very particularly, he was told I was unwell, that I had had sunstroke or some such thing. He appeared to be exceedingly anxious. At daybreak next morning I visited him, determined to tell him the truth. He had gone out on the previous evening and had not yet returned. I called again during the course of the day. My friend was still absent. I waited a whole week. He did not appear. At length I informed the authorities. A search was started, but not the least trace of his whereabouts or the manner of his disappearance was discovered. A thorough examination was made of the derelict chateau. Nothing of a suspicious nature came to light. There was no sign that a woman had been concealed there. The inquiries led to nothing and the search was abandoned. For more than half a century I have heard nothing. I know no more than before. Okay, so there you are. The apparition. And I, I wrestled with whether to present this story or not. As I said, I, I recorded a bunch in 2021, let's say 10, and a couple of them I accidentally deleted, and I'll probably never know what they were, uh, but this was one that was not deleted, and I liked that it was narrated by an old man, and pretty much the entire story is him talking, and you know me, I love to do the voice of old people, of old men and old women. I really enjoy seeing if I can get the timber of my voice to change, the quality of the, my voice. Sometimes it's hard to maintain that. And for more than a half an hour of the recording, I tried to do it in that same voice. And when he was doing the voices of other characters, I tried to keep in his mouth. That sounds weird. 
I tried to do the voices of the other characters as though it was an 80-something-year-old man speaking the lines that a young person did or woman did. And your mileage may vary. I guess I, I've started saying that quite a bit. It wasn't something that I heard growing up. But I, I like it. Once I heard it, I, I just, I embraced that phrase to mean, you know, you may not appreciate it. You may like it. Uh, it's a pers matter of personal preference. That's what your mileage may vary means to me. I love ghost stories. And so I was happy to read this one and, and a few others. And yet... I wasn't particularly impressed with this story. And as I said, I accidentally deleted a bunch of files off of my recorder. Uh, it probably prevented me from having like one more episode in September, maybe one more episode in October than I would have had because I had to re-record an entire episode and I had to dedicate a couple of recording sessions that would have gone to something else, to re-recording chapters from a couple of the audiobooks that I was working on. But this one was one that survived, and so I was like, all right, it survived for a reason. Let's edit it. And I, when I got to the ending in the recording, so I, I just barely edited the story today, and then I sat down to record this episode as soon as I had saved the recording. But when I got to the end, I said, wait, wait, that was it? That was the ending of the story? Oh, crap. And so I went back and re-recorded the last paragraph so that it felt a little bit more like the ending of a story. But I wasn't pleased with that ending. It just, those kind of things where it's just like, you know, we'll leave it to you whether it was a ghost or not. We'll leave it to you to decide whether something supernatural happened. Uh, I never got any answers, the end. That is definitely a, a stylistic choice. That, that is an option that you can do when you are telling a story. But it's not very satisfying. If you listen to the podcast that I do with Marshall Latham, The Outfield Excursions, where we do movie reviews, we reviewed uh, The Turn of the Screw... No, no. It was called The Innocence. It was a 60s adaptation of The Turn of the Screw by Henry Irving? Gosh, now I'm, I'm paranoid that I'm getting his, his name wrong. Henry James. Whoops. And the deal with the book or novella The Turn of the Screw was that there is the female protagonist. She's telling the story. But we don't know if she is mad or if she actually encountered spirits. And it tried to straddle that line where it would be open to interpretation one way or another. And I don't like that at all. It is a, a choice in storytelling that I don't like. Uh, I, I would much rather somebody commit to an answer, to an opinion, and say, you know, this is the way it went. And you can say, you know, some may say that I'm crazy, but I swear that it is true, etc., etc. There are different adaptations of The Turn of the Screw. 
and Marshall and I reviewed two of them. We reviewed a movie called The Turning, which was absolute garbage. Part of the problem was that they had had an ending that I must not have tested well or the executives didn't like the ending. And they said, hey, go shoot another ending. And they, they did, but it was worse. And, you know, they included the alternate ending, the, 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 the second ending in the film. And I will say it was among the worst endings I have ever seen in a movie. And I've seen thousands of movies, right? What, what is worse is that they showed scenes from the original ending in the trailer. And so Marshall, who had seen that trailer, expected a certain thing to happen that doesn't happen in the movie at all. And in fact, it's, it's fair to say that nothing happens in the ending that they used. And I'm not even going to say your mileage may vary on that. The turning is, is terrible. But th there are different ways to adapt the turning of the screw. And there was one on Netflix where they did it as a, a miniseries, essentially, I think. Um, or a limited series. I, I'm not sure what they call those. Where it's just a single season, it tells a story, and then it's over. I, I suppose we could call it a miniseries. I would like to sit down and see that, to see how they adapted it into a five, six, seven-hour narrative. I realize that I'm rambling, but the point I'm trying to make is, A, you know, I don't like the stories where they leave it open to interpretation. You can decide what really happened. But two, the original short story was written in French, and it was written in 19th century French, which I would assume is different than the French that is spoken today because languages evolve. I don't speak French, and what I read was a translation. And while I was editing it today, I decided, well, let me bring up the text so that I can see, because there were a couple of times where I didn't know if it was a stylistic flourish on my part, because I like repeated myself a couple of times, or if that was in the text. And so I called up the, like the, oh gosh, what is it called? Project, it starts with a G, Gutenberg, Project Gutenberg, right? Where they have attempted to type up and upload onto the, the internet the text of stories that have, are in the public domain so that Anybody can read them for free very easily. And I like that. And Project Gutenberg also has an audio option, which I, I've seen before, to varying results, just depending. Because, you know, these are people that are doing it for free. And a lot of times, if you are particularly talented, you don't want to do it for free. But what I discovered was that the translation of the French story was completely different than what I had recorded. You could follow along. <laughs> the story was the same. The narrative was the same, but the words were different. For example, let me read the last bit of the story as it appears on Project Gutenberg. Uh, it says that he, he looked at his military cape and it was covered with long black hairs. I then called my orderly. 
I was too disturbed, too upset to go and see my friend that day, and I also wished to reflect more fully upon what I ought to tell him. I sent him his letters, for which he gave the soldier a receipt. He asked after me most particularly, and, on being told I was ill, had had a sunstroke, appeared exceedingly anxious. Next morning I went to him, determined to tell him the truth. He had gone out the evening before and had not yet returned. I called again during the day. My friend was still absent. After waiting a week longer without news of him, I notified the authorities, and a judicial search was instituted. Not the slightest trace of his whereabouts or manner of disappearance was discovered. A minute inspection of the abandoned chateau revealed nothing of a suspicious character. There was no indication that a woman had been concealed there. After fruitless researches, all further efforts were abandoned, and for fifty-six years I have heard nothing. I know no more than before. Unless you have the two side by side, maybe it is difficult to see how different those three paragraphs are from one another. This feels like what I was just reading in my own voice, not in the character's voice. This feels like 19th century English. This feels like Poe, or I, I guess... Uh, early Lovecraft or, or, or Conan Doyle or something like that, especially Poe, it's very wordy. It's very antiquated. I did fall asleep while I was narrating the story, but had I been reading this version with this language, I would have fallen asleep at the very beginning. I probably wouldn't have made it through. The version that I was narrating to you uh, was in a book of English ghost stories, uh, mostly public domain old pieces, where it was just safe to record any of them because they uh, it's been long enough there in the public domain. But it, it felt like a modern translation. It felt like 20th century English, late 20th century. I, I believe the collection was published in... 2001 or something like that, but it had been a collection that an anthologist was putting together and then he died, so it took a, a couple of years before it got published. That's an overshare, but basically it made me think about how different things can feel depending on the way that they're presented to you, and definitely as far as translations go. There's no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation from one language to another because you have to decide what words that you choose, what parallels that you choose. There, there can be turns of phrase, there can be slang, all sorts of things such as that that you have to translate. You have to figure out how you're going to translate that. And a lot of times... Instead of translating things literally, they, they translate them so that the gist is, is maintained, so that the feel is maintained. I, uh, I'm trying to write a Christmas dead and breakfast story, which is basically that 
the employees of the Noble Oaks Bed and Breakfast sit around a fire, well, in, in the lobby of the hotel, and they tell of experiences that they have had at the Bed and Breakfast, you know, sort of a ghost story sharing evening. It was a, an idea that came to me while I was shoveling gravel, where I thought, oh, you know, think of that most wonderful time of the year song and how it, it said there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories holes. And I thought about that and I thought, wouldn't that be fun to have like five or six very, very little stories uh, of things that people had experienced there? And I sat down and I started to write it. Uh, and it was during that stretch when I no longer wanted to write every single day. And I was going to give it up. And Big Anklevich told me not to. He told me to just go ahead. And even if you only write 100 words each day, just keep the momentum going. Because if I stopped, maybe I would stop for good. And so it has taken me weeks to write this this Christmas story. And it's fine because I haven't put any deadline on myself to finish it or anything. But something that I've been trying to do is have there be a different voice to each story. A different way of telling the stories. When Natalie tells a story, it should be different than when the handyman who does repairs at the bed and breakfast tells a story. And then I've got a one of the housekeeping ladies, and, and I was really wanting her to tell the last story. And I wanted to do it in sort of broken English and the occasional lapse into Spanish. Uh, because that seems the way that somebody who is an immigrant, who, you know, English is not her first language. There are certain words she's not going to know how she would tell a story like that. And I haven't gotten to that story. That's the one that I was going to end it on. But it's been a challenge. You know, it's, it's sort of tied to what I'm talking about with this, with the apparition and translating from French and narrating as though I'm an 82-year-old. But any writer, and much, much, much better writers than me, will tell you that it's good to stretch yourself, to challenge yourself, to write in ways that you haven't done it before, to try things that you haven't tried before because it helps you grow as an artist. I think any kind of artist would say that, whether they were a painter, whether they were a musician, whether they were an actor. And so I have no idea whether the story itself, which I think I'm calling There'll Be Scary Ghost Stories. That's, I'm not sure if that's right, but it's something that I've been playing with for the for the title. We'll see. I've tried to write different kinds of stories in that series. Uh, funny ones, sexy ones, scary ones. And hopefully the stories do not feel super repetitious. Although it's kind of built into the scenario that they have to be somewhat uh, similar to one another. So that, that's a challenge there too. Anyway, this has been a very, very short story, episode, I realize. And that, that's fine because there have been some 
that were just insanely long and it's exhausting to edit them. This one I should be able to put out very soon, uh, before 2022 even begins. And that's great. I, I love the idea that I could sit down and record a story and record an episode and have it out like two weeks later. Back in the Steve days, Big and I would get together one week and we would record a story. Then we would meet the next week and record the episode for that story. And before we got together the next time, we would put out that episode. Not every single time, but most times. Because he would work on the story and I would work on the episode and we would put our halves together and there it was. It's neat when I can do something that quickly, record it, and here it is, uh, because there are episodes that have been in the can for months, <laughs> still haven't come out. I hope that you enjoy these where I read other people's stories and that you enjoy my performances. I know that your mileage may vary on my voice and the choices that I make, but I do really, really enjoy narration and I really enjoy short stories and um, let me know if you enjoy it and, and let me know if there are stories that are out there. Maybe if you have read one by Guy de Maupassant. <laughs> Don't let me know if I'm mispronouncing that. I really, really tried. But uh, if there's a story by him that you think I ought to do, that, that I would enjoy, then let me know. I'll, I'll give it a try. And uh, there will be more of these podcasts that dare not speak its name. Because I have other stories that I've, I've recorded. And uh, it's, it's cool to be able to have these where I don't have to worry about, well, what if somebody doesn't like my story? I'm not as emotionally invested in that. If somebody doesn't like my narration, I can get over that. It's harder to get over somebody doesn't like the story that I... I wrote. So you go have a good evening and uh, brush somebody's hair when you get a chance. I've been Rich Outfield. Good night. The podcast you have just listened to was produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it while you still have the chance. The music in the show was by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com. McLeod, I am told, also has a license to kill. And remember, there's a Patreon page out there if you'd like to throw a dollar or two my way. I must be dreaming. By Guy de Maupassant. Let's find out if I said that even close to correctly. It is a story from, gosh, I wonder if I can figure out what year the story is from. What year was the apparition by Guy de Maupassant published? Yeah, I gave you a little, uh, little opera there. Oh, he died at age 42.
Well, that's sad. Right before he died, he, he said, uh, you know, famous last words, I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. Wow. That's rough. <laughs> uh, let's cut that bit out. Let's, let's put that in the outtakes, okay? 